If you would, turn in your Bible to 1 John chapter 5. What's that? This is the last one. And that was a hard-fought decision to be the last one, too, let me tell you. In fact, I told Dion Oliver, I think sometime last week, as he asked the same question, I, I said that the, the, the painful part of preaching is that you, you always become qualified to preach the book you're preaching after it's over. Um, at least you feel a little bit more that way. I don't know that there's ever qualification other than the Spirit uh, illuminating our minds for sure. Here after 58-ish, if I've kept my count right, sermons, we come to hear the Apostle John one last time. And as I think about all of the glory that has been shown in these pages and all of God's goodness and all of the grandeur of God that is revealed in His Word as I came to this point of preaching this last verse, I really was overwhelmed by the reality that though God is so merciful to reveal Himself to us in the pages of Scripture, I am certain that we take it far too lightly. I know that our salvation can't be in our understanding, that it must be by grace because every time we leave a book like this, I find that there are two things that are true in a fresh new way. And one, that, that is that God is greater than I had ever imagined at the beginning. And also that we are, in our own merit, far more sinful than I ever thought. And that leads to the culminating thought that we have to be saved by grace, that we are beggars of the kindness of God. So let us drink from this deep well one more time. If you would stand and do honor to the reading of God's Word. The Apostle John, under the inspiration of the Spirit of Almighty God, starting in verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of Him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. 
And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know Him who is true, that is the Father. And we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. And our text today, little children, keep yourselves from idols. This is God's Word to us today. Beloved, would you pray with me? Father, we come so thankful for Your Word. So thankful that You have revealed Yourself to us. Merciful, loving, wise, sovereign. Father, we ask that we would not merely walk away with new ideas, but that our hearts would be molded by Your truth and the power of Your Spirit and for Your glory. Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So we remember that John is writing for our joy in a world that lies in the power of the evil one and that this joy is only found in a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Here, this old man comes and again addresses those who are beloved by him. John comes and speaks to the church not only in his age, but throughout every age. And he writes here under the weight of the affection that God has given him for the redeemed people that God has so loved from the foundation of the world. And this is His parting line. This is the final word. Some have even made the argument that if you were to place the Bible in its chronological order, though we can't know this for sure, that these words, that this verse 21, would in fact be the final word of all of the Bible. It's an interesting thought. We don't have time to debate it this morning, and really it doesn't matter. Because what we do have and what we can be sure of is in this closing of 1 John, of this letter, we have words of a dear man of the faith, of one of God's messengers, one of God's true apostles. Last words often have weight, don't they? There's been much speculation and inquiry, and we're not there yet, but into what maybe the Queen of England's last words were. I remember nine years ago today, as I was coming to the office and walking up the stairs of the building next door, getting a phone call that um, one of the most precious people in my life, my grandmother, had passed away. And I remember in that moment hearing the last words that she had spoken to me. Her uh, uh, last words stick, not necessarily just of their, because of their chronology, although that seemingly has some weight, they, they stick in our minds because we are loved by the people who speak them. And I so hope today that as we come to these final words, we're not just flipping pages. That we don't just land here and say, well, this is the end of 1 John, but rather that we sense the affection of the dear Apostle John, not as remote and cold, but as warm, that of a cherished grandparent. Someone who has genuinely loved us in the faith these many Sundays through his writing. And if we really think about this man for a minute, 
and all that he experienced, I think it'll serve us in receiving this final verse. This is a man who had many experiences. This is a man who lived his life in the company of the Lord Jesus Christ. He begins by telling us that he had placed his hands upon him. He had seen the miracles that Christ had performed. He had been there when Christ had preached sermons. I often wonder if there were people in the congregation complaining about how long Jesus preached and His mannerisms and all of those things. My guess is yes, because we're sinful. Uh, But John had been there. He could have told us. He beheld Christ, not just merely with His eyes, but with His heart. And He truly loved Him. And He truly loves us this morning. And here He writes to us, wanting us to have victory in our walk, wanting us to experience genuine joy, wanting us to flourish in the Gospel. And what does He say? Little children, keep yourself from idols. Now the first thing that I think we have to note here is that John is doing what John always does. John is the king of contrast. He loves to hold before our eyes the light and the darkness, the love and the hate, that which is true from that which is a lie. And that's what he's doing again. He's contrasting idolatry with what he has already told us in verse 20, and that is that we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true, that we are in Him who is true, that is the Father, And we are in Him who is true through His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. And so He holds before us that last thing that we know of the three. Uh, he, He holds before us what is true and right. And that is again our triune God. And then He He contrasts that with the idols of this fallen world. He warns us. He tells us not only are we to, as Christians, guard, cherish, keep close the commandments of God, but we are also to reject in our thinking, in our practice, in our lives, the idols that have befallen man. We don't like to be warned, do we? If you tell a a small child, now I'm warning you not to do this, generally that's the recipe for them to run off in that direction and do the very thing that you've warned them not to do. And and here's the thing, as we grow up, I think we become self-deluded in thinking that we have moved on from being those kinds of people. But in the economy of this admonition, this warning, apparently not. Because we're all, to one degree or another, idolaters. I think most of us don't like warnings because we're reminded that we're sinful. We think that we have it together. We think that we're sufficient. And it makes little of us. We don't need a warning. But John knows our need better than we do. And ultimately, God knows our need. And he, he, John here is wise. And, and he's... 
He's walked with Christ. He's known what it means to fight against idolatry in his own life. John knows that this world is full of lies. It's full of false teachers, which he's warned us about. It's full of antichrist, and it is full of false doctrine. And so John is full of warning, not only here, but in all that he writes. And he ends here, not merely because it's his style, but because he knows that this is the practical reminder that we need. Little children, keep yourself from idols. John has left us here with these three positive truths. We know that everyone who has been born of God, verse 18, does not keep on sinning, but he who is born of God protects him. That is, Christ protects him. And the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God. Our salvation is from Him alone. And that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And then third, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true. In His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true and eternal, a true God and eternal life. And then He turns in all of the grandeur of those three statements... And he doesn't merely say farewell. He doesn't say, now you have it all together. He doesn't say, I can trust that since you know those three things, you will never idolize. No, rather, he says, little children, remember who you are. And remember that idolatry is your greatest danger. This is a very important imperative It's an imperative from John, but not only John. It's a warning from God Himself to the church that He has redeemed by the blood of His Son. So let us receive it that way. So if this is the parting command, then we must see first that the worship of idols is our greatest enemy in this life. The greatest difficulty that we face this morning is not taxation. It's not Congress. It's not psychological. It's not all of the myriad of things in this world. The first and primary problem that you and I face as those who have been redeemed by God and are in the Father through the Son by the power of the Spirit is that if we do not abide in Him, we are prone to idolatry. Some would say that the the greatest things that get between ourselves and God are the things that we do. The moralists believe this. Stop doing bad things. If If you don't do bad things, then God will love you. And beloved, the truth is that the greatest danger we face is not one first of actions, but of idolatry that takes place in our hearts and in our minds. Actions are always the outcome of our thinking. Actions are always the expression of what we believe. We know that the great issue of our day is living by what we feel. People all the time, well, I don't feel this way. I just, if I could get my feelings in order, then I would, I would believe what you're saying. But the problem, beloved, is not feelings. 
I was speaking to a dear brother in our church just a couple weeks ago after a sermon and talking about a particular subject that led us to a conversation about our anthropology and I just kind of explained something I had learned that week and a dear brother encouraged me. Uh, you're saying you say that you believe what you're saying about the composition of humanity, but you've preached this and it reminded me, oh yeah, I don't believe that our affections lead Ultimately, it is our cognitive, what we know, uh, our thinking. In all, uh, in the fall, rather, uh, our nature was flipped on its end, and so we were we were created to be cerebral, uh, as I think Al Mohler would call us, cogitating creatures. If you want to look up that word later, you can. We are people who are meant to think. It's what it's what it's what marks us as being different from all of the rest of God's creation. We, we can reason in a higher capacity, a higher function, uh, and, and those, that, that reasoning, that cognition, is meant to lord over the affections or the way that we feel. But in the fall, what has happened is all of that has been turned on end in such a way that we primarily as fallen humans, apart from the grace of God, live by what we feel and not by what we think. And that's a problem. It's a great problem in the church today because she's not being led led about by good doctrine. She's being led about by how she feels. Now, I'm not saying that experience doesn't matter. And I'm not saying the way we feel doesn't matter. We, We should feel the way and want to feel the way the living God feels about things. But we can't feel the way the living God thinks about things until we know Him. Until we understand who He is. When feelings lead the way, beloved, and this is the point, idolatry is sure to follow. This is why we find in Scripture a pattern where we are always taught what to believe before we are told what to do. Though the Bible does not talk about how we should feel about certain actions, and it doesn't just throw rote commands out disconnected from a teaching uh, of who the living God is. Rather, it informs our minds about who God is and what He has accomplished. And then in light of that, the apostles will call us, the prophets will call us to right behavior. The Bible doesn't just tell us, feel this way, do this. It, it, it is an instrument whereby the living God is revealed to us so that we then know how to respond. There is always a belief that precedes the command. There is always a positive before a negative. Even if we boil it down to the Ten Commandments, we find that first there are positives about what we are to do in light of who God is. That we are not to have other gods before him, but then in the second table of the law, there are the prohibitions. There is first the positive, remember who your, your God is, before there are the negatives. There, there is this ethic that runs through and through uh, throughout Scripture, I believe, as I thought about this over the past several weeks, that our actions always flow from our beliefs. We speak, Jesus says, out of the abundance of the heart. That is what we believe. And if we are to fight idolatry, we must fight it not just on the outside, but internally with what we 
believe with what is the cornerstone of our understanding of the living God. So that begs the question, what is idolatry? And the answer is, and there could be several, but simply, an idol is anything in our lives that occupies the place that should be occupied by God alone. Anything that holds my life and my devotion and my supreme affection, that is an idol. An idol is anything on which I depend, anything I offer worship to. We've talked about on Wednesday night for the Wednesday night crowd and just a way of encouragement. Wednesday night right now, the last 13 psalms that we are in and really the last 15 psalms of the Psalter are psalms that are on, uh, really the theme is worship. And we've talked about how uh, worship is really a, a newer gloss of an old expression, worth-ship. That uh, when we come to worship, we are ascribing to God the worth that He is due. And so our idols can be found simply by this. Follow your mental energy, your money, your time, and at the end, you are likely to find what you worship. But the question is, Not merely in a vague sense, what is idolatry, but what did John mean here? What is John talking about? Many would come and immediately say, well, John is talking here about Buddha. John is talking about a statue that is created out of wood or stone or metal. And friends, there are Uh, There are idols in that sense found throughout the Bible, but we have to remember in our interpretation of what does John mean here by idols, that this is not the the primary problem these people faith. Many of the reformers came to this text and they pointed to the Catholic Church. They pointed to all of the idolatry of saint worship and uh, of, of Mary and of uh, raising popes to a level that the Bible doesn't and all of the, uh, the, the, the nonsense that follows in that hierarchical uh, man-driven system. And, and I think that there's reason why they said that and that was because in their particular context that was the idol that needed to be fought in that day and still in our day. But the idols that are being spoken of here confronting these believers were not idols outwardly that could be touched, they were idols of the mind. It was Gnosticism that had caused John, you'll remember, to write this book. Those people who stood before the church and said, we have a higher spiritual knowledge. We have greater understanding that you can't have. God has only given it to us. And they went on to teach that all of the material part of this world which included in their economy Jesus, physically, His body, all of that is evil in some sense and is is bound to be destroyed and everything that is spiritual is good. And, And their extrapolation of their Gnosticism was because the material is bad and the spiritual is good. In the material, we can do whatever we want. John really pegs the Gnostics here and says you are nothing more than idolaters. Your wrong thinking about God has led you where? To idolatry, to sexual immorality, to all of this foolish thinking. 
And so he's warning them against this present problem. The issue, I think, that could be universally applied here is understanding what the Reformers really taught in a sense that idolatry is, in this context, having any false notion of God. Let that sink in for a minute. Idolatry is having any false idea of God. It is worshiping my own idea of who God is instead of worshiping God for who He reveals Himself to be in the pages of Scripture. The, this uh, Antichrist had been, these Antichrists had been teaching their own views of God, their own thinking. And beloved, we are, we are 2,000 years removed. We don't have less to contend with. We have more. I hear all the time, and I don't ever want to constrain people to something the Bible doesn't because that would be idolatry. But I do want to say this. There, there's, this there's this spirit or this, this idea that, well, men don't need to be educated. They don't need to go to college to be good preachers. Truish. But with 2,000 years of heresies laying at our feet, it'd probably be a good idea if they did. And if they're not going to go to an institution, they better study their hind end off on their own. Because they're going to stand and give an account to the living God about verse 21. Did you, Pastor, help these beloved redeemed of mine keep themselves from from idols, from worshiping the vain notions of men. Beloved, in every generation, in every age, under every denominational banner and to some degree in every pulpit, this idolatry has been a human problem. If you have a false idea of who God is, that will ultimately lead you to idolatry. And it does not matter your intention, how you feel about it, or if everyone in the room or your generation agrees with you. Because all things will be reproved by a holy and triune God in whom there is no shadow of change. So if God has not revealed it of Himself, it is, if it is not something that has been clearly proclaimed from the pages of Scripture as men have have begged God for an illuminated by the power of His Spirit understanding, if it is merely the work of men, it is not something to worship. And this leads us to think about all of the forms of idolatry. Remember, our wrong thinking about God leads us into idolatry. And I believe the first form that we see of idolatry is that it's possible for us to worship our religion instead of worshiping God. It is possible for us to, to hold to our denominational banner so tightly that we forget the One who has redeemed us. It's possible for us to be so arrogant that we are... I love this uh, reality that I've noticed about the fallen human condition. We all think that traditionalism seems to be wrong and bad especially when it's the traditionalism of other people. But our traditions are fine. They should never be questioned. And tradition in and of itself, uh, to quote Yaroslav Pelikan, traditional, tra tradition is the living faith of the dead. Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. 
There's a distinction there. It's okay to have traditions, but we should not hold them as idols. I've known men, even in our own congregation, uh, I think that have left now, but who would very boisterously say, I'm a Baptist. Okay, well, let's talk about your doctrine of baptism. And I was like, in so many of those conversations, well, you say you're a Baptist, but you have a whole lot of non-Baptistic belief to be such a strong-hearted Baptist. And what that is, is it's merely idolatry. It's, friends, we are comforted by the label. We find security in what the sign says outside. Beloved, that sign's going to rot and decay one day. The living God never will. We should be comforted in Christ alone. In who God is. Now, I'm a Baptist. We can have an argument about that. And we can discuss through Scripture. But those things, that our, our, our religious perspectives should not become our idols. We should not have, and friends, I, th- I think that we find it here when we become angry because anyone would challenge us. Friends, I-, I invite everyone to challenge what I believe. But where it comes down to me finding it in the pages of Scripture, I'm not going to move. And that is for the glory of God, not for the sake of idolatry. Theology is, is similar and has often become an idol. Men worship their ideas about God instead of worshiping God Himself. Now some people worship their ideas about God apart from any study. They refuse to do anything other than sit in their armchair and just think and create their own idol in that way. Other men go to the books and they they lean in heavy and they study for years, but they forget to ask the living God to illuminate their mind that they would truly know Him and worship Him for who who He really is. And what they get in the context of that is a worship of their study and not an exaltation of Christ. Men worship in accordance with a theological argument, often never considering where it came from. I've heard people say, well, I just believe the Bible. I don't need anybody to teach me. Well, if you read your Bible, it will tell you that God has given you teachers. I just believe my Bible. We don't need anything else. Okay, well, that comes from a theological camp of which we are not a part of. Some men will worship without ever working through and honoring God with their minds. We are called to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And yes, first and primarily it is the Spirit that does that. But friends, there is a working through of our doctrine that matters. We just must never bring our theology to be the idol. Beloved, it is so possible that we can love the doctrine. We can love the doctrine. One doctrine that I've gotten in trouble for is the doctrine of the atonement because I believe in the penal substitutionary atonement of Christ that is Jesus died in my place and there is nothing that could convince me that that is a wrong doctrine but it's possible for us to love the doctrine so much that we forget the one who bled and died to secure our atonement always put Jesus always put the triune God above your theology because it's in doing so that you flee from idols and that you actually have a good theology by God's grace. So anything, even theology misplaced, can lead to idolatry, those wrong thinking. Good theology 
stays under and close to the text of God's Word. And it doesn't point back to itself as a little club. Good theology always points to the glory of God. So wrong thinking leads us to idolize our theology. Wrong thinking also leads us to at times idolize a heritage, a national identity, a country that we come from. I, Clatworthy, my last name, I, my ancestry is in England, and uh, when I found out, heard that the Queen had passed away, there's something in me that I, beloved, you might not, but I love the pomp and circumstance of Britain. Nobody throws a party like those people. <laughs> and, and there, I also love history, and so there's, there's good, uh, I think, good history, reasons why certain things are done, and I, I love to hear all of those things. I, I, earlier in the week, after... Um, she had passed away. I, in fact, had to call uh, over to the UK to order something. And um, the lady that answered the phone said something like, Good day, sir. How are you? And, and you know, in her British accent. And I told, I got it done with the phone call. And I'm like, babe, why did my people ever leave? I, I grew up in the sticks of Missouri, man. It sounds like Frodo's just outside having a great time over there. And we do mourn for the queen and there's argument about her place and all of those things but um, I do think that that there is something in that woman of dedicated service throughout her lifetime I don't see in my own generation and I'm hoping doesn't completely dissipate but uh, thankful for that we, but we can love home we can love our heritage or a national identity be uh, above and beyond what is reasonable and that can become an idol Now, God has given us these identities. He's given us this heritage of various forms in the body of Christ. And and they're not bad in and of themselves. We don't have to be ashamed as some foolish people in higher education today are saying that we should be ashamed of colonialism or of our uh, Anglo heritage. Well, other people may be ashamed. I'm not going to be. Now, there are certain actions that were taken in history that certainly cause shame. And I don't have to go back to colonial times. You can go to the Oval Office just a couple of administrations ago and there's shame in my opinion. Or now. But the identity doesn't have to be shamed. All of that to say our, our heritages, our national identities can become idolatrous, but they can also be a means to an end of bringing glory to God. Uh, relationships are another way when our thinking about God is off that, that we can begin to idolize. We can... I thought about saying wives can idolize their husbands, but I thought it was more believable to say husbands can idolize their wives for good reasons, but it can happen both ways. Uh, Parents can idolize, and I've seen this often, their children. Uh, Children occupy in their parents' minds and in their parents' heart a place that only the Lord should should occupy. And, And again, there's a balance here because... We should think the way the Lord thinks about the family that He has entrusted to us. The, the wife, the, the children that He has given to us. I, I heard of a counselor one time, a biblical counselor friend of mine, early in their uh, counseling ministry, had a dear man, godly man, who came into his office and was just struggling with grieving over the death of his wife. And two or three sessions in, this young man was, was really just kind of exacerbated and came to the end of himself and being able to provide wise counsel is what I think happened. And he turned to this man and he said, you know, I think you're idolizing your wife. The man never came back for any more counsel and shouldn't. 
Because grieving over the loss of a loved one isn't idolatry. It can become that. But it's not necessarily uh, that. Uh, Idolatry really comes when we lift people in our affections for them above the living God. One of my favorite... um, One of my favorite devotions in Morning and Evening by Charles Spurgeon is the evening devotion of March 22nd. And it's one of my favorites because March 22nd was the day that my great-grandfather died. And the last words of that devotion are, by faith we let them go. That when people we love pass away, it's not that we forget them, it's not that we cease to love them, but we entrust them to the Lord. And that takes time and wisdom in grieving. People can also worship, and we've all seen this to some varying degree, probably in our own lives, can worship their job. They sacrifice for their job. They abandon the church. They lay aside other more important responsibilities. And jobs are important, but they are not our identities. There will be a day, gloriously, when I will no longer stand behind a pulpit. There will be a day when the doctor lays down his craft or the carpenter no longer builds. Because we're given those things as a means to an end, not as an end and an identity unto themselves. And I find that men particularly struggle in this area. But friends, all of these things, in our state of mind about the world around us and about the Lord, the wrong thinking that we have about His creation and about Him, ultimately leads us to the idol that we all struggle with, the ultimate idol, the idol of idols, and that idol is merely this, ourselves. All idols can be traced to some varying degree back to self. People worship their country. Why? Because it's theirs. It's an odd person that idolizes the nation of another. They worship their children because they belong to them. They worship their job because its success or failure impacts them. They idolize their ministry because it is in that ministry, not in Christ, that they find solace and comfort. The ultimate idol about which we have to be so careful is the terrifying idol of self. Everything revolves around self, my interest, my position, my development, myself, and all the things that result from thinking about self. The greatest danger is to place ourselves above God. And yet, that is what we find in our generation. People who say, well, my God would never judge. My God would never do this. My God. And what they are declaring publicly is their idolatry. They are saying, my thoughts of who God is are more important than who He has revealed Himself to be. Beloved, we we idolize when we, we puff our minds up above the living God. And this is illustrated, I think, in in this way. Um, when, when Queen Elizabeth II, and this hasn't been formally announced, but several months ago I read and thought about this because this was all imminent. When Queen Elizabeth II was crowned, she was coronated under the title, now you remember in their system, the Queen is the head of the Anglican Church. And she was crowned in 1952 as the defender of the definite article faith. 
That is, there was one faith in that economy of, 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 of crowning the queen. When Charles is crowned, he will be crowned defender of faith. The definite article taken away. Because we have been become, in not only our country, but in the, a global politic, so um, inclusive to believe that it doesn't matter who God says that He is. All that matters is what I believe about God. And do you see that that's nothing more than rank idolatry? We've become so inclusive that what God has declared about Himself has become the least important thing in our society. And then we wake up one morning and turn the TV on and wonder why the country has gone to hell in a handbasket. Because we no longer take God at His word about who He is. We all can have our own God. No, we can all have our own idols. But there is only one God. And friends, this is the greatest danger to the church and it's the greatest danger to the church in every place. It is the greatest danger to the Baptist church at large. It is the greatest danger to Life Point Baptist Church at 810 Austin Street. It is the greatest danger to every one of our families. And that is that we would worship according to our own feelings and whims and not under the weight of what the Spirit teaches us through the Word. We are called here to keep ourselves from idols, to guard against like we are at war. This is a command that John has given not tepidly, but almost as a last herald from a great general. Any of you watch the movie Patton? Oh, such a fantastic movie. Got in trouble for watching it with my wife the first time because Patton's not exactly the most saltless speaker in the world. He uses some language, but he... he riles the men up and he sends them out to battle. And that's what's happening here. Keep yourself from idols. Be on guard. Uh, this is not quietism. This is an activity that the church is to undertake. We are to be engaged against the idols of this world. And somebody will say, well, then there's an apparent contradiction. Because you just told us several Sundays ago that in verse 18, we are taught that he who was born of God protects him. That Jesus, there in verse 18, is protecting all of those that belong to him. But here, so we are kept by Christ. But here, there seems to be this parting implication that we keep ourselves from idolatry. So which is it, Jay? And the answer is yes. The answer is there is no contradiction found here. Only perfect biblical balance. And it is a conditional balance. Much like this, Bob Rothschafer loved this verse. And I've come to love it because of him. Isaiah 26, verse 3. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. That verse doesn't stop at you keep him in perfect peace and that's it. He goes on, He will do that, but only if the believer's mind is stayed on Him. He will keep us, and the evil one will never get to us, verse 18 says. The evil one will never give us back in his clutches. That is true, but only when we keep ourselves from idolatry. You see, what is being said here is that as we keep ourselves from idols, Jesus keeps us from the evil one. 
And the big question is, which one comes first? I think we have to revert to the words of Christ that he is before, or of Paul, that he is before all things. And what comes first is Jesus keeping us in himself. And if he is keeping us in himself, what are we naturally going to do? We're going to obey verse 21, and we are going to keep ourselves from idols. The way to keep ourselves in right relationship with Jesus and and to have joy in Him is to run from idols. The, the, The way to keep ourselves from idols is not to write up a list of what idols our generation thinks of. You know, um... 50 years ago, if you had a skirt that was above your kneecap, ladies, or uh, smoking, or whatever the issue is of the day, there's legalists that will, well, this is idolatry, don't do those things, and then you're not an idolater. No, that's not true. Your little cruddy heart is prone to idolatry. The only way to keep it from idolizing is to run to Christ. It's to abide in Him. And so the question is, how is this done? How are we to guard ourselves from idols? Well, we must remember the truth first about who we are. Remember what John tells us in chapter 3, verse 2? Beloved, we are God's children now. What we are, what we will be, has not yet appeared. But at this very moment, we are the children of God. And the question that he's asking implicitly is this, are we walking that way? Friends, the church today has no efficacy in our culture, not because Congress keeps passing laws, but because we keep following idols. We give our minds over to false conceptions of who the living God is. Our thinking leads to how we walk. And we know that we are of God, but the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. We must remember who we are, but we must also remember where we live and that there are idols around every corner. The the way that we live ultimately should reveal not ourselves, but the living Christ who has redeemed us. And the question is, is it so today? We remember this verse in the context of knowing Him who is true. Our walk with Him leads away from idolatry. Verse 20 says that we know Him who is true. In John chapter 17, Jesus says, this is eternal life, that, you, that they may know You, that is the Father, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom You have sent. So the vital thing in fighting idolatry is to know God, to walk with Him, to abide in Him, and to have knowledge of Him. Calvin rightly said, true knowledge consists in two things, knowledge of God and knowledge of ourselves. We must remember who He is, and we must remember who we are. I am to remember that I'm not of this world, and therefore I must not live for or worship anything that belongs to to this world and that leads to the second thing so the first thing we have to do is remember who God is to to not idolize means we have to have a good theology of God theology is the study of God and the only way that our minds are set free from bad theology is by study through the power of the spirit friends that's what Sunday morning is It's not a time for you to just be merely warmed in an emotional sense. It's for your minds to be transformed. For you to be confronted with notions of who God is that that you've never considered before. 
So we are to know who God is. We are to know ourselves. But we are also, I think, helped by remembering the nature of idols. Again, worship being the ascribing of worth to God. Ascribing of worth to things. And the worship of idol is ascribing worth that is beyond the due reality of that idol. So we must consider all the things we idolize. We have to stop for a minute and consider our families, our career, our nation, our heritage, our leaders, our educations, our religion. And the question is, are any of those things worthy of our worship? And the answer must be a resounding no. And the reason is this, because none of those idols ultimately last. They are means to the glory of God, but they all, everything in this life perish. There is nothing in this world that lasts. Everything is only temporary. Everything is moving to an end. There is nothing lasting or eternal. And thus, in this life, there is nothing that is worthy of our worship. The Queen has been in this past week and Some of you probably bristle because we're good Americans, but the the queen has been rightly, I think, mourned and and will be in the days ahead. But there's also this hysteria uh, uh, that I see throughout that whole process. And one of the things recently is you'll find on Facebook and the different social media platforms this story uh, about Queen Elizabeth and and that she at one point in her life said that she hoped that, that Jesus... Now, she may have said this, but... Uh, that Jesus would return. And she was asked, well, why do you want Jesus to return? And her response is, so that I may lay my crown at His feet. What a beautiful thing. The only problem is, is Queen Elizabeth is not the one who said that. It was first attributed to Queen Victoria, and we don't even know if she said that. Let's see, what we want to do when we're hurting and mourning is we tend to want to make the person that we're mourning over more than what they were instead of what they... Uh, instead of just mourning for what they've actually done. Uh, And and there's an interesting reality, I think, that was remarkable to kind of listen to um, and and think about. I I was first struck by the fact that here's a woman who has been on so many continents, been photographed, but done, I mean, pretty remarkable life. And and we're talking volumes of volumes of libraries that have probably been written about her. But here was the statement that was hung on the gate of all of the castles that that, that belonged to the crown. Simply said, the queen died peacefully at Balmoral this afternoon. And then it goes on to to detail what the, the king was going to do in the next 24 hours. It had that strong British resilience in just that short note. The queen is dead. Long live the king. Kind of a shocking twist. Um, Kind of made me feel like, dang, y'all, slow down a little bit over there. Um, But there's this reality that, that, that is found in that just subtle statement. Here is a woman who was called the sovereign and your majesty and met heads of state throughout so many generations. And yet... One little line declared her end. She came to an end like the rest of us. And I think that that is what is unsettling to so many people. Uh, Boris Johnson kind of had mentioned throughout the week in one of his speeches that he was emotionally distraught. And Boris Johnson's not an emotional man. 
but he was emotionally distraught several weeks ago at the thought that that the queen wouldn't be here and that's because he had so come to believe that she would just always she was such a fixture she would always be there but beloved even queens and kings die everything in this life we've been reminded in this national uh, reality is passing away in our own nation because of September 11th, what we experienced, for those of you who were alive during that time, I remember distinctly feeling robbed of a sense of security and that this could actually happen and that so many people could perish like that. And before that, anybody, if you would have said some people are going to get into planes and fly them into buildings, they would have said, you are absolutely out of your mind. Afterwards, we created TSA and a bunch of other institutions because things are passing away and in this world transient. But Jesus Christ, Hebrews says in chapter 13, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. To kings, queens, presidents, and leaders we can show honor. To our wives we should cherish and serve. To our children we should shower with affection and kindness and good education. To those we work with we should rightly give our effort, but it is to God alone that we should give our worship. And why? Because He alone is worthy. Because He alone is enduring. You see, beloved, what really sets us free from idolatry is not anything we do, it's who He is. It is the very person of the triune God in all of His attributes. He alone is omnipresent. He alone is omniscient. He alone is omnipotent, omnipotent. He alone is immutable. He alone is self-existent and eternal. He never fails. And what has John taught us of Him in these past 50-some, maybe 60 weeks? He's taught us that our God is holy, that He is loving, that He is powerful, that He is kind, that He is truthful, that He is forgiving, that He is wise, and that He is sovereign. And now what this last verse declares to you and I is that we owe to Him alone our worship. The antidote, the only cure to idolatry are the qualities, the attributes of our majestic God. And so might we say with that great hymnist, the one who penned, there is a fountain filled with blood, only later to go on and to lose his mind. Another illustration that everything's passing. May we say with him, with William Cooper, the dearest idol I have known, whatever that idol be, Help me to tear it from thy throne and to, Lord, worship only thee. Would you pray with me? Father, we come as idolaters before your throne this morning. We acknowledge the reality that far too often we've not loved our neighbor. We've not cherished the church that's redeemed by your blood. We've not loved you well. Father, we have put ourself in your place. What more was it that Adam did in the Garden of Eden than that mere reality? And yet we find in our own members still a propensity to do the same. We come before you with humble hearts, genuinely begging that you would cast the idols of ourselves, of our own making, 
away from us, that you would do that, not merely through moralism, but by pouring out your Spirit in this place into our hearts in such a way that we are so enthralled with who you are in all of your attributes, and we give everything we are to worship you. Would you make it so?